Hey everybody, Rayla Casey here with Matt Lieb. Welcome to the next episode of Graybeards on Storage podcast, a show where we get Graybeard storage bloggers to talk with system vendors and other experts to discuss upcoming products, technologies, and trends affecting the data center today. my pleasure to introduce Peter Thompson, CEO, and George Dochev, CTO of LucidLink. So Peter and George, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what LucidLink is all about? Thanks, Ray. Uh, I'm Peter. Uh, I'm the uh, co-founder and CEO of LucidLink. And I'm George Dochev, and I'm the co-founder and CTO of LucidLink. So uh, George and I started the company in 2016, and this was after spending... Um, about uh, 15 years together at a, at a storage software company uh, that was focused on uh, uh, software-defined storage or storage virtualization, as we called it back then. And, and we, what we created was a, a solution called LucidLink File Spaces, which is a high-performance cloud-native file service that's targeted uh, at distributed uh, collaborative workloads. So it's uh, file spaces is built on top of object storage as the back end. Uh, we deliver it 100% in software and charge it as SaaS. Uh, we're, we're supporting our file-based production workloads that um, uh, provide on-demand streaming remote access for globally dispersed or distributed teams. So think about uh, teams who are collaborating and require some kind of shared storage to get access to shared assets to do their work. And yeah, are you talking than, like like media entertainment, filming, you know, film, video editing, and, and that sort of stuff? Or is it more like Slack developers, uh, you know, co-developing some solution across the world or both of those? Yeah, so it's it's a general usage uh, plat uh, storage technology. Uh, but what we realized early on uh, was we were targeting teams who were remote, working with especially large files because you know the larger the file is, the harder it is to to get access to it and collaborate on it. And so media and entertainment is an excellent use case that that came up early on. As is things like uh, the AEC uh, you know, CAD CAM design, oil and, spat, um, oil and gas, geospatial engineering, uh, medical imaging, all of these things share those common characteristics. Which are uh, big files that need to be accessed by different locations or different collaborators? Different collaborators in different locations, uh, different parts of a workflow. Uh, it can be any number of things, but uh, the, the commonality there is that uh, they're accessing the same set of files, and it's just hard to, uh, to to constantly move those around. Yes, yeah. So, I mean, there's been a couple of solutions out there in the past, uh, cloud gateways, um, uh, NAS appliances that use cloud backing storage and stuff like that. How would you suggest, how does LucidLink differ from those sorts of solutions? So we're fundamentally different in the in, in that the following sense. Instead of synchronizing files back and forth, uh, we actually stream the bits and pieces on demand as the application requests them. And um, 
there, there are probably two classes of services out there that are trying to solve to address the same problem, which is the problem of accessing um, data sets over distance, over the internet environment. Um, I would say one of them uh, falls in the uh, file sync and share category, which are software-only solutions. Uh, but fundamentally, what they do is they um, they replicate fi uh, files locally from the source of truth, which is in the cloud, down to your laptop or your device. Yeah, I got this box, Dropbox stuff that does that for my laptop, my my workstation, my my Palm Pilot, not Palm Pilot, but uh, God, my iPad. I am talking too old here. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Exactly, and they all. Um, they started as full synchronization. They would synchronize the entire set. Then they started doing selective synchronization because people had too much stuff that couldn't fit locally. Then they started doing on-demand synchronization. So you can see that evolution uh, going on. Uh, what we do instead is we say we're not going to synchronize any data. We are actually going to stream it on-demand. So to make a, an analogy, a local file system behaves the following the same way um, except that the storage is on your local disk instead of being in the cloud and when the application reads a file that file doesn't get replicated in its entirety in memory it gets fetched on demand those bits and pieces those blocks that that comprise the file so we do a similar thing but we do it in a distributed fashion and we do it uh, very efficiently over the internet environment which poses its own challenges yeah, yeah, you would think the latency would be a real challenge for files uh, if you're if you're never if you're never keeping a copy local uh, to where it's being accessed, then then all that data sitting on the cloud has to be accessed and streamed across uh, the WAN or the internet, I guess. That and that's that's exactly what we're addressing uh, the the latency that's incurred by accessing files over distance. So are you streaming the entire file down or, or just what's needed at the time, like portions of video files that are being edited or that kind of thing? Um, yeah, so that's exactly right. We're streaming only those portions of the file that the application needs at that, in that moment in time. I'll give you an example. A typical example would be, let's say you use Adobe Premiere video editing software and you open up a 100 gig file or several hundreds of gigabytes of video, you can start editing that video immediately because we don't need to download the file beforehand. And, and, and same goes for writes. So we provide a true, we offer a true read, write random file system. That's real hard to do over the internet and, and with object storage specifically. So talk, talk to me about metadata and where that lies. Sure. So I would agree uh, with that statement that it's really hard to do. And in fact, there's been a lot of um, attempts over the years. Um, a lot of um, research uh, goes back to Andrew file system. Um, we haven't seen a whole lot of successful commercial implementations of a truly distributed internet file system, um, partly due to the um, maybe mature infrastructure at the time, uh, but also to, to the um, intent and desire to replicate the, the, the local file system. What we did was we, we 
somewhat relaxed the file system semantics and said, okay, how do we do this over the internet without sacrificing the user experience, but still relaxing some of the semantics? So for instance, we also function in a, in a um, eventually consistent manner um, in certain cases. This allows us to mitigate to, to an extent the issues of latency, etc. Um, when it comes to metadata, um, it's interesting that you brought this up. Um, we are evolving also as a, as a product and as a technology. We started out uh, actually synchronizing the entire metadata across all devices, but streaming the data. The content of the files is streamed on demand. The metadata is uh, was synchronized. Now, as we are getting um, larger and larger customers and their needs increase over time, we've come to the realization that even synchronizing metadata uh, may be too, uh, too much and, and involves too much traffic. Uh, and so we're actually streaming metadata as well as data in this new and upcoming LucidLink 2.0 um, that we're going to be rolling out this year. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> You know, file locks and stuff like that. If the metadata is not here, if the metadata is here, so I mean, it, it's it, yeah, metadata has to be present. I would say in the in the the host that's accessing the files, right? I mean, I guess you could partition it or or uh, yeah, somehow s- split it up uh, some to some extent. But so yeah, what, Ray, you, know, you you hit on the issue that that really sticks in my mind, and that's file locking. Um, so, so how does file locking take place and what kind of versioning, um, is, is able to be done if, if, for example, two people are trying to edit the same area within the same save video in your use case, um, at the same time, how does that work? Well, um, it works and it works really, really well. Uh, we've done a lot of work uh, in that area and it's a non-trivial problem, I agree with you. This is actually the crux of the uh, of all the work that we've done. Uh, when it comes to file locking, we do support distributed file locking in a very efficient way. Um, and we would actually switch between eventually and strongly consistent mode of operation on the fly depending on what the application is currently doing. So if the application tries to lock a file, we'll temporarily, for that particular file, we'll switch to a strongly consistent uh, mode where where we would say, for instance, synchronize those, ensure that all the metadata and the bits and pieces of the data that the application needs are the most up-to-date. And as they are uh, modified, we then upload them to the cloud. Um, And we switch freely between that and doing this lazily uh, in order to improve the user experience. But there is a lot of, this is a classical distributed systems problem, and there's a lot of work we've done in that area to um, give you that near local user experience while without sacrificing the, the you know, the, the performance, et cetera. Talk to me a little bit about the, the protocols you support. I mean, is, is it, you mentioned it's like a cloud NAS. Is the support NFS and SMB access? We we provide a solution that behaves like a cloud NAS. The, the, the protocols that you mentioned is what is typically used by other vendors. Um, unfortunately, those protocols were designed in the 80s for different, for low latency, high throughput local area networks. 
they don't do well over the internet and in some cases um, fail completely. And so the first thing that we had to do was to reimagine what a, um, a an efficient file protocol would look like over the internet. So we did away with these old legacy protocols and we uh, invented and designed our own protocol. Having said that, I want to point out the fact that the storage that we use um, is off-the-shelf object storage. We uh, we utilize any object cloud um, vendor and, uh, and their object storage um, uh, offerings and solutions, as well as on-premise um, object storage um, technologies as well. So the back end is, is, is objects um, that I guess are, you know, can be in any cloud that supports object storage. Does it have to be S3 compatible or is you, or do you support, I don't know, Blob Native, Azure, or whatever the Google Cloud equivalent would be? Um, well, it's, it's interesting that the um, industry has consolidated around Amazon's S3, except for Microsoft. So um, we support any and every S3 compatible um, object storage vendor, as well as Microsoft Azure. Uh, Google Cloud that you mentioned, for instance, they have an S3 compatibility layer that they actually uh, prefer to use. So we work with them. Yeah, yeah. And that's on-prem, any S3 compatible object storage on-prem as well, I guess, right? That is correct. So talk to me about the components of the system. Obviously, you have the object storage you have some software running on the the remote uh, hosts that are accessing the data, and you've got this metadata thing someplace. Right. So there there are actually three parts to the system. Uh, the the first part is the LucidLink client, or that uh, is installed as an application on the endpoints. Uh, this is a, a a lightweight piece of software that installs as a parallel file system, as a true file system. Um, and it, it uh, supports Mac, Windows, Linux. Uh, you can install it on a, on a virtual machine in a container. Uh, so it's, it's really quite flexible where you would deploy that. Uh, and that's what handles uh, the, the streaming, uh, the prefetching, the write-back caching. Uh, that's where it, it presents itself as a mount point, or you can configure it as a drive letter, uh, but it, it, it it is your yeah, the file system. Uh, the second part is the object storage that uh, that we were just talking about. Uh, we've got two models for that. Customers can either bring their own uh, storage account, configure their own uh, bucket, uh, and associate that with our service, or they can uh, they can we will provide an end to end service that includes uh, storage in a in a preferred vendor. Uh, so we can do that either way. One thing that's important to note is the way that we use object storage also kind of comes back to uh, the streaming and uh, the prefetching and providing portions of files uh, on demand. And that is that rather than uh, utilizing the, uh, the semantics of uh, the, the typical object storage semantics of one file equals one object, uh, we take these larger files, break them into smaller chunks, and each one of those chunks becomes its own object. Now, since we've, we've uh, synchronized the metadata to the endpoints, 
we have all of the information about the file that uh, the application needs. And as it is requesting uh, portions of that file, we're able to deliver these you know, uh, chunks uh, as objects and cache those locally so that the, the access is very fast. So essentially, the, the longer you're working on a project, you're, you're, you're warming up that cache. More of the file that you're using is local, so you don't have to constantly stream, out, stream it out uh, on demand. And then it uses lower uh, utilization times to stream that back up to sort of the, the centralized object store? Well, so rather than in typical object storage, if you make a change to file, you rewrite entire objects all the time. We're just rewriting chunks of those files, uh, which is a lot more efficient. So you do. You, you mentioned a couple of things: uh, this prefetch and, and write back, and and uh, so talk to me. So prefetch would be, let's say, I'm going to open up a video file. You know, it's obviously that you're going to have to to hurry up and get the first chunk, whatever that first chunk is, from wherever it's located. You have to make sure the metadata for the file is sitting on the client, I guess. Um, so that's got to be fetched if it's not there, and and uh, the, the first portion of the file has to be fetched. But while I'm working on that, you're going to prefetch uh, a number of portions after that. Is that how this works? That's how it works. You. Correctly stated earlier that latency is the the big issue here, and that's what I call enemy number one for us. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what we're trying to, to to address: how to mitigate the effects of latency. Because ultimately, when you when you have to <clears throat> go out to the cloud and fetch data, that incurs latency. And if you're doing this, say across continental US, that could go up to 50 milliseconds plus. And so, so you you're doing everything you can to reduce the back and forth, right? And prefetching, of course, is, a, is, a, is an important part of that. By the way, <clears throat> local file systems do the same thing. They also prefetch from the local disk into the main memory, and then they, they, use, the, they use the host buffer, the, the main memory, as, 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 lo uh, as local non-persistent cache. The difference is that uh, we're, we we utilize a persistent cache, but in our prefetching is a lot more sophisticated because it's so much more important in our world. Uh, so we monitor the file um, access patterns, and we try to predict and, and prefetch based on the uh, application I/O pattern. But we don't do this only within a file. We also do this within directories. We monitor which files you're accessing within a directory, and we'll try to prefetch those files. And this um, uh, occurs not only for data, but also for metadata, because like I said earlier, in this new Lucid 2.0, we don't have the liberty to synchronize the entire metadata. And so we will always try to predict where you're going and prefetch the, the, the metadata so that the hot working set is always locally stored on your local disk. Yeah, yeah, and you so uh, you mentioned persistent cache. So that's the the local disk or local SSD that you would define and assign to the client. I guess is that how this works? Right. So when you install our agent uh, um, or a piece of software that runs on the client device, let's say your laptop, um, during initialization, we will um, take a portion of your local disk as 
to you to use as a as a persistent cache and that's fully configurable dynamic it it extends and, and, and shrinks on demand you so you have full control over that aspect and whatever amount of local storage you give us we will utilize as local cache to keep the like i said the hot working set of the of the most frequently used data yeah yeah that hot working set is the real crux of the, of the solution to the latency problem right i mean if you can if you can prefetch the metadata and prefetch the data that's going to be requested then you're well off that's that's absolutely right and and this is very important by the way it's very important for a number of other technologies uh, your modern cpu won't be able to work as fast and as efficiently um, without prefetching right Right. Same goes for our system. Data. Yeah, of course. I gotcha. Yeah. These L2, L1, L2, and L3 caches, they they achieve very very high um, high accuracy rates, um, and and that's why the CPU is able to perform so well. Without caching, those CPUs won't work nearly as fast. Maybe they'll be at a one hundredth of their of their speed with caching. Same goes for a system like ours. Caching is is cru crucial. You mentioned write back and, and you mentioned your system dynamically switches from eventual consistency to strongly consistent based on f client access patterns, file locking. I'm, I'm not quite sure when the switch um, occurs. Right. Well, I didn't want to get into the technical details, but uh, <laughs> right. Um, but let, let's try to keep it high level. In the presence of file locking, when the application utilizes file locking, which in our world would um, uh, would transform into distributed file locking, obviously, because you might have multiple people across the world collaborating on the same files or data sets. In the presence of those file locks, we will use a we'll do a full POSIX compliant, strongly consistent file system semantics. But if the application doesn't utilize file locks, then we will uh, switch, um, again, this is completely transparent to the end user, but we go, we fall back to eventually consistent mode of operation where we will write the data locally on, uh, uh, on the local disk and then, and then lazily push it out to the cloud. Um, that's uh, and and that's and that's a very key point also because when it comes to performance and and, um, and user experience, that's that plays a crucial role as well. So uh, a thought occurs to me, Ray, um, and this is about uh, things like GDPR and and uh, regionally zoned data sets. Um, I, do do you handle that, or is that up to the end user company to? to make sure that their data doesn't cross international boundaries where, where inappropriate? Well, so that's um, a little bit of both uh, is the answer for that. <laughs> um, you know, part of the model that we had of bring your own storage uh, was, and the fact that we support both hyperscalers as well as S3 variants that can be in a, um, you know, a regional cloud service provider or even in some company's data center um, allows them to specify exactly where uh, the storage is going to be. Um, now we have a, a third part of the system that uh, as we were kind of talking about that system breakdown previously, we talked about the agent, we talked about the object storage. We also have the Lucidlink service 
Uh, and this is the SaaS component of the platform that uh, we run on behalf of the customer. Uh, and we, we spin up a, a service on behalf of each and every file space, which is the, uh, the, the nomenclature that we have for our product. Uh, uh, customers create a file space, and when they create a file space, we spin up a, a, a discrete service on behalf of each and every one of those. Uh, we can run that anywhere. And so we, we run that uh, in a location that... Uh, that is appropriate both in terms of distance and latency, as well as uh, taking into account GDPR and uh, data sovereignty uh, requirements. Mm -hmm. And let me add to that one um, important piece of our technology um, is the security model that we utilize. Um, and unlike all the other solutions that we've seen out there, we actually use a client's full client-side encryption model. What that means is that um, the, all the metadata, or should I say the user-generated metadata, as well as all the content of all these files is encrypted locally with um, keys that are only accessible locally and stays encrypted in transit and at rest. So what that means is that we as a provider, as a service provider, don't have access to your data and, and, and neither does the, um, the, the object storage vendor, let's say Amazon AWS or Google Cloud or, or Microsoft Azure. And this gives you complete control over your data. This is uh, especially um, um, pertinent and useful to um, uh, say our media customers in some cases they're working on uh, movies that you know you, you've read in the news when what happens when you know some of these some of that leaks to the uh, to, to the public and so it's it's a it's a very important uh, consideration for our customers but you you um, you touched on GDPR that also uh, uh, to an extent addresses some of the GDPR requirements because the data is encrypted in in um, we as a vendor don't have access to that. So George, you mentioned that the metadata, user-generated metadata was also encrypted. I mean, how would how does that work in your system? If, you, if I'm gonna go out and decide I wanna lock file A and I, it, now that is, you know, my metadata, it's encrypted. So the file name is no longer, I would say visible to the service. That, that is correct. It's no longer visible to the service but it's visible to all the other users who have been given access to that file. We obviously have a very rich user model, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. We don't have access to, um, to user-generated metadata, which means um, file names, directory names, um, extended attributes, all these things. That that was a really important uh, um, aspect to you know to, to our business growing the way it has over the last year. Um, you know this during the the pandemic we saw we saw more sacrificial cows sacrifice or <laughs> sacred sacred cows sacred sacrificed. Cows. Um, you know uh, companies who uh, would would absolutely not consider. Uh, cloud suddenly, um, and I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, one of the first ones that that uh, led us into the media and entertainment space uh, is a large broadcaster, 
uh, and they they found their way to us. They they called us up, and you know the 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 media tech uh, told us, look, I just sent home eighty editors. Uh, I gave them a laptop, a VPN connection, and a hard drive. This may you know this will this will get us uh, over the next uh, two weeks, but that's not going to continue. Uh, that's not going to allow us to continue our operations. So. They talked to us. They hadn't heard about us before. We're a startup. Um, we're, it was an unplanned, unbudgeted project. And within six weeks, uh, they had 300 people on the system and about 200 terabytes. Um, you know, fast forward over about, um, about a year, and we have um, uh, that same customer that is, uh, you know, got ab- about a petabyte and a thousand users. Um, so it, it really has allowed them to, you know, a, allowed innovation to happen in the uh, in the cloud space that I don't think we would have seen uh, previously. You mentioned, uh, I don't, do you guys support things like snapshots and backups and things like that? I mean, it's the, the objects being sort of immutable would mean as I write these things, they're, you know, old objects exist, but the new objects are created automatically. So I guess um, the question is snapshots. Let's start there. Sure, <laughs> sure. Why don't Why don't I give you the the super high level, and then George can give you some additional fidelity around around what we're doing. Um, you know, the the simple answer is yes, we absolutely do snapshots. In fact, uh, for every file space, we configure um, a snapshot schedule by default uh, on behalf of the customer, so they don't even have to think about that. Uh, the, we, we do this because, and this is where I'll have George uh, provide some more, more detail on this, but we're, we're using a log structured file system. That's the way we, we've, uh, we've developed this so that every write is written as a new object, which means we have the, the entire stream of the file history, which essentially gives us free snapshots, uh, to, to be able to, to configure, um, George, I, th- I think you probably need to give a, a bit more detail. Um, well, uh, what happens to the metadata? You're talking about the object storage is great, but the metadata is all important as well. So is that stored on object? No, metadata is stored separately. This is provided by our Link service. Um, the metadata, uh, I'll, just at a very high level, the metadata is, is stored um, and distributed um, um, based on a distributed key value store. So when we set out to build the system, we said um, we need to build a general purpose distributed key value store. Or if you wish, it's a lightweight distributed uh, database. And as part of that uh, proprietary distributed key value store, from the very beginning, we supported um, copy and write um uh, behavior semantics so that we can save those snapshots uh, for the metadata as well. So not only you will um, we we save each and every write uh, for the file content, but we also create snapshots for the metadata so that we can re- reconstitute the um, the file system in its entirety as it existed at a prior point in time. Very, very curious. Um, it seems like you've got, you know, from, from what I can see, all the ends covered. 
Um, I'm curious about uh, a couple of things. One of them is um, Active Directory integration. Um, sure. So <clears throat> we, it seems that the industry is going, uh, is moving towards um, SSO, uh, OpenID Connect, and those technologies, and we support currently uh, uh, Microsoft Active Directory service, their SSO service, as well as Okta. Um, and I would venture to say that this probably covers 95% of our user base, right? Yeah. Um, and it also increases to an extent the degree of security that we offer as a service because um, the way our security model works is um, the all the encryption keys are themselves wrapped, technically speaking, or encrypted uh, through user passwords. And so the the strength of the system is is basically um, hinges on the strength of your password, and people don't like to type long passwords, right? So that's um, um, so in order to address this, if you have if you had a third-party service that can store your quote-unquote um, secret that's then used to unlock all the encryption keys, and then you log into that third-party service. Um, we've increased the the overall security, and that third party third party service is exactly the the SSO providers that I mentioned earlier. So the net net is that this actually brings the the security even higher. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and that was going to be my next question: where where do the uh, encryption keys get stored? So that's based on a best practice recommendation to to any company implementing you. So, um, yeah, uh, most of our enterprise customers um, today probably use some form of SSO. Um, and there is a lot of additional requests because we have customers that have, well, upward to 100,000 users. I'm not suggesting all of them are on our system, but they are managing these huge user bases. And so, um, I mean, this is deep enterprise territory that we're working uh, in, and as a result, uh, they're they're setting very high requirements for for SSO and and just um, user management, and we're working on that to to satisfy those high end enterprise requirements. It brings up a couple of other questions. So, what would be a typical uh, size of the data that you would support? I mean, obviously. It appears you can support anything from terabytes to petabytes, but I mean, what you know, what's an average size and what's a, a maximum size that you currently have installed, if that's the right word? <laughs> sure. So, um, you know, it, it's it's less about the the uh, the size uh, and the capacity; it's more about the numbers of files uh, in in terms of the scaling out our system. Um, but that said, the way that people and customers specifically think about are in terms of capacity of their data. Uh, so I would say that, um, you know, we, we, you know, our, our business, uh, ranges from individual professional YouTubers and, and photographers all the way up to enterprise broadcast broadcasters. Uh, we by default have a minimum, uh, file space size of one terabyte. Uh, we provide five uh, users uh, you know, when, when you set that up, um, and we scale up to where we've got uh, customers in the, in the 
petabyte plus range with uh, thousands of, of, uh, of users. If we were talking more about averages, I'd say that probably the sweet spot of our business where we just have you know, daily people coming in, uh, signing up and, um, and just starting to run with it would probably be in the 20 to 30 users, 50 terabyte range. Um, and it, you know, that generally grows within that because what often happens is we'll, we'll get a marketing department from a company, uh, that comes in to, to address a specific problem. And after using it for a while, they say, you know what, why don't we put our user directories on here? Or why don't we, um, why don't we roll this out to our finance department as well? They've got these great big spreadsheets they have to deal with. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, and that culminated into, you know, a, a really interesting example of a, one of our customers in the AEC space um, who found us, deployed it, tried it. Um, they were replacing a, one of the uh, kind of cloud gateway technologies out there um, and that, that just didn't work with people trying to log in from home over a VPN. It just, it didn't satisfy the requirements and started using it and, and gradually and this guy called us up uh, one day and he says guess where i am i said i i have no idea where are you he said well i'm out on the back loading dock what do you think i'm doing here <laughs> again i've got no idea what are you doing there and he says well i'm waiting for a truck to come in and pick up our nases i've got three <laughs> you know, i got three nases they're going to come and pick them up and we've moved everything onto lucid link we're all in uh, we would call that sweeping the floor kind of thing. You know? <laughs> well, you know, and that was that was the original premise that George and I had that um, if you could if you could deliver files as if it were local, most companies don't want to have to deal with that that uh, vicious cycle of you know buying new uh, over provisioning storage, migrating it all, managing it. Um, and then doing that over and over again. So, um, you know, I guess uh, that that was great validation for us. But like I said, it kind of scared the crap out of us too. Yeah, it's it's nice it's nice when a plan comes together. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm wondering about licensing though. How how does that work? Right. So we we um, as I mentioned, we have two models for the storage: bring your own, or we'll provide it. Uh, and the two components that we charge on are the, uh, the, the amount of capacity under LucidLink control. So within your file space, how much capacity you have. And we, that's, uh, that is uh, metered as SAS. So it is at the gigabyte per day level uh, charged over the period of a month. And then the second component is the number of users that you have uh, accessing that capacity. Sure. So, so if the utilization does shrink in in terms of numbers of files, you're actually going to um, step that down over that period of time. You bet. Yep. That's that's really amenable, and no no um, egress charges. Well, not by us, but uh, the... <laughs> uh, uh, okay, let's go there. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, that's, and that's, that's, you know, that this is an area that we are absolutely focused on. Now, remember that we do help mitigate egress because we're not constantly delivering entire files, right? And, 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 and we allow you to configure your local cache on an individual machine 
anywhere between the default five gigs up to 10 terabytes. So the more you use the system, the more you have cached locally, the less egress you're going to incur. Uh, however, egress is an unpredictable charge that is, you know, it's, and it's, it's one of the highest components of, the, of, of cloud storage when, when you look at the actual storage cost components. So it's, it's a real issue. Um, we also kind of find it, you know, there, there is a, a cost of bandwidth. You know, we wouldn't dispute that. Now, whether the cost of bandwidth is the equivalent to the cost of egress being charged, well, there might be a little room for, uh, for a lively debate in that area. So one of the other things we've done, and for example, we've partnered with IBM Cause, uh, Cloud Object Storage, um, and we have uh, put together special pricing that uh, allows us to offer our customers an egress rate at about one third uh, what the normal rack rates that you'd pay to the other uh, um, hyperscalers would be. Yep, exactly. Well, that's nice. So, so cause is a interesting solution in and of itself. But so, is that in that case, this is where you um, you're providing the complete solution, the storage as well as uh, the service. That's correct. And and we're we've got discussions with all the other vendors as well. I think that you know the this is this is the the address what we're addressing is put all your your storage in the cloud, but use your devices on the edge. And that cloud to edge is not something that most people are doing. Usually, you've got the choice of let me let me. I've got to bring bring my data to the application. So I can either put my applications and run them in the cloud next to the data, or I can figure out uh, ways and methodologies to bring the data down to my application and, and do it there. Uh, and usually that, as we've talked about it, are, is synchronization or cloud gateway technologies. What we're trying to do is, is, is separate those decisions, consolidate your data in the cloud, but access it with your local applications without having to worry about where that data is. Uh, would you consider your solution a high availability solution? I mean, uh, you know, with with storage and stuff like that, you'd have multiple controllers and you know multiple paths to the data, that sort of thing. I, I guess because the data is all on cloud, that's fairly multiple paths exist. The metadata, I'm still kind of confused where the metadata resides and, and, and you know, it's, it's uh, fault tolerance or high availability kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Well, it depends on how you define high availability, but I would, I would say the answer is yes, we are highly available solution for the following reasons. So the file system is comprised of metadata and data. The metadata is, uh, as we mentioned, provided by our own service, which is highly available. Uh, in itself, um, and it and it um, lives in um, in a in a hyperscaler uh, in in the cloud itself, and the data could be anywhere. Typically, that would be another hyperscaler object storage, um, and those are extremely durable and extremely highly available. And, and you could so, take a client and, and run it effectively on any. Uh, any PC laptop kind of environment you want, I guess, right? If Absolutely let's say you're, you've lost your laptop or something like that, you could take it to another 
buy another laptop and install a, the, the Lucid client, I guess, and then you'd be up and running? Absolutely. Sure. This, is, this, is, this, this would be a different um, characteristic of a storage solution that's fault tolerance that you're referring to. And we're absolutely fault tolerant because all the data lives in the cloud. Um, and the beauty of our approach is that all the, the data being, everything being encrypted, even locally in your local cache, if somebody were to steal your laptop, you actually haven't leaked any information because all the data is encrypted the same way it's encrypted in the cloud. Um, but it's uh, absolutely fault tolerant. It's all, also highly available because we we sit on top of a very, very highly available object store. Let me just also mention that um, similar to the high availability, we can talk about scalability. The object storage, um, say, let, let's give the, the, the typical example of Amazon S3 is a, is a wonder of the world, essentially, what, what Amazon has built. It's extremely um, available, elastic, and durable, uh, and it's also extremely scalable. What that means is that you could have a thousand editors editing video files simultaneously from their respective homes, and the aggregate throughput, can I can guarantee you, will beat any NAS out there because there is no single point where, through which the, the information flows, right? So those, those thousands of, of um, video editors will probably be utilizing thousands upon, upon thousands of servers in, in the cloud. So the system scales virtually horizontally unlimited. And that's, that's the beauty of the cloud solution. And, and not only that, but these, they can be working on their own Macs uh, or uh, you know, the, the laptop or machine of their choice. Some of them might be on uh, VDI editing stations. And then after they finish setting up the job, they may do the render in the cloud. And all of that is done using the same set of shared data without having to keep so pushing So I can have a, an EC2 instance and running LucidLink client? You of bet. Course. You could do that. You could use uh, Teradici. You could use, um, you know, Bebop. You could use you know, anybody who's providing a, a, an, an editing workstation. Um, a typical use case for the media and entertainment would be proxy generation and rendering. So let's say you um, ingest raw footage and you don't want to, or you cannot use 8K, uh, the, the 8K raw footage that you shot. Um, you could have an instance running in the cloud that creates those proxies on the fly. They are stored on LucidLink, um, of course, and all the video editors uh, gain immediate access. The beauty of this is that you could be doing this on the fly. In other words, those proxies could be generated on the fly, uh, what we call growing files, and you could be editing that growing proxy. Uh, while it's while it's being produced, and uh, wait a minute, both both these guys would be editing the same file to, per se, right? Or one would be creating the file, and the other one would be editing it somewhere behind it, I guess. That's exactly what we do, and broadcasters love it because they're always in time crunch. They they need to produce material um, instantly, as, as soon as it's shot. They have to they have to start uh, working on the on the you know, on the final footage. When I think file lock, I always think that the whole file is locked, not the various portions. You're, you're locking the file at a, at a sub-file level? Um, 
in this particular example that I gave you of the growing proxies, there is no need for actual file locking, by the way, because one is extending, uh, the proxy generation software is just extending the file while the video editor is just reading that file to, to create a, um, um, a project around it. Uh, but to answer your specific question, yes, we do support byte range locking. There's certain software that utilizes byte range locking and, and we do support byte range locking not the entire file locking well this has been amazing um matt any last questions for peter or george no it's it's been a really interesting conversation peter or george anything you'd like to say to our listening audience before we close well um you know we've been told that uh usually the, the uh customer finds us and say, why don't I know about you? And so we're, we're, we're very happy to be part of this uh, podcast and hope that uh, the word gets out. Um, we've tried to make it really easy. Uh, you can hit our, our website. You can spin up a free, completely free, fully functional two-week trial just to see if it works for your particular use case. Um, and we'd love to, um, we'd love to to talk to to anyone out there who's got these kind of needs. I mean, we learn we learn more about our product from our customers and where we should take that product than um, from anywhere else. So, you know, please hit us up, and uh, we just would like to continue the conversation with with you. All right, that's it for now. Bye, Matt. Bye, Ray. Bye, Peter and George. Bye. Bye, guys. Until next time. Next time, we will talk to another system storage technology person. Any questions you want us to ask, please let us know. And if you enjoy our podcast, tell your friends about it. Please review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as this will help get the word out.